Welcome to the final draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Tobias Madden. The final draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling, help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Tobias Madden is an author and an editor. He's also a performer who has worked on musicals such as Cats, Mary Poppins and Guys and Dolls. Tobias edited and published Underdog, a Love Oz YA short story anthology, and he joins us today with his debut novel, Anything But Fine. One moment. That's all it takes to topple Luca's dream of joining the Australian Ballet School. One misstep, and Luca is propelled from arabesques to Netflix with no chill in a moon boot on the couch. Now, Luca thinks losing ballet means losing himself. It was basically his whole identity. Now he's at North, no friends, no dance, and a lot of homophobia from the jocks. But then there's the cute guy at Luca's OT appointments. Maybe the cascade of events of that misstep will show Luca that there was always so much more to life than he'd imagined. Join me as we discover Tobias Madden's Anything But Fine. Hello, Tobias, are we connected? Yes, I think so. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Fabulous to be chatting with you this morning. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to compliment you on your bookshelf behind you because I, I, in this morning as I was prepping, I watched the little Q&A I think you did for Penguin with um, uh, yeah. about the book and I was like, oh, that's a really lovely spot he's sitting in. I like those bookshelves. Um, and you're sitting there. so it's very nice. Yeah, this is my standard kind of uh, Zoom and filming spot. There's like a little nook in the corner of the study with a window right in front of it. So it's really good for natural light and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> I've been here a lot lately. Oh, terrific. I'm really excited to be um, to be chatting all things anything but fine, and yeah. um, a little a little ritual that I have in any book where I find this, I'm just going to be like shout out to Geelong. My um, just that there's a little bit of the in, in, my mum comes from Geelong, and Geelong was a big part of my childhood, and not yeah. so much in books. So it's like always great when I see it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I feel like. Um, a lot of regional Victoria doesn't pop up too much in books. I, I've never read a book set in Ballarat um, or anything like that. So it's really nice to be able to visit some of those places in the book. It's also really like for me to, to travel around Ballarat in your book. I mean, cause like my experience, you know, when you're, when you're doing sort of family stuff, like we go down for Christmas doing family stuff, you're not kind of doing the tourist experience, but the only experience I have of Ballarat is also the tourist experience. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh wow, this is a this is a whole town that isn't just a mock up of Victorian kind of gold rush Australia. Totally, people actually live there. It's crazy, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into this. Um, and I just, yeah, I've I've got lots of lots of questions, and fantastic. And I think pronunciation wise, everything is is pretty um, pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I do, I do kind of, in my intro, I, I drop a, a ballet term, so you're probably going to want to correct me on that, but let's just let me do it and embarrass myself. 
Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm really excited. Regular listeners will know we've been getting a little bit true crime the last few weeks, so it's really nice um, to kind of reset and have just this lovely story that you've created. I want to introduce people to it just quickly. So one moment, that's all it takes to topple Luca's dream of joining the Australian Ballet School. One misstep. And now Luca's been propelled from arabesques to Netflix with no chill in a moon boot on the couch. Luca thinks losing ballet means losing himself. It was basically his whole identity. But the cascade of events beginning with one little step shows him there was always so much more to the life that he'd imagined. Now, Tobias, you open in a dance studio and we see Luca finishing a routine. I'm not sure if that's the right t- t- terminology for, um, <laughs> for, for a sequence of, of ballet. The ballet is so central to his identity. But after the accident, it actually features very little in the narrative except in Luca's remembrance of his, his world. And mm. I wondered, did you want to explore the way we fashion our identities through the things that we put focus on there? Yeah, so I guess a lot of the book is about, you know, how much of ourselves and our identity and our worth we put into our vocation and our career um, and those sort of things. Because I think, you know, and particularly for um, people in the arts, um, athletes, all of that sort of thing, all of those really high pressure and really kind of um, high commitment careers like that, that you don't sort of have another life outside of that. I think in those particularly, you know, your, your whole identity gets wrapped up in what you do. And then I thought it would be really interesting to explore what it's like when that gets taken away from you before you really have even started. Because I think, you know, we, we've seen that story a lot for um, probably more athletes and stuff like that through injury where, you know, they're in the peak of their career and then suddenly that's taken away. But I don't think we've seen it as much from, you know, a 16 year old who has these massive kind of lofty dreams and then to have it taken away before they've really started. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine what that's like, but, um, you know, I got to explore that through Luca, which was really, really interesting. Yeah. And Luca has this extraordinary skill, the type that very few people have the opportunity to explore in themselves. But he also, as you've just mentioned, he, he had given up so much to pursue it. How do you feel about these kind of all or nothing choices, especially when they come up for children and teenagers? Um, I guess it's hard. It's kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, I think like we see with Luca, it comes with the possibility of, you know, of kind of great trauma when the dreams don't work out, which they don't for everyone. But I do also think that to some degree, you know, it's hard to achieve success in those kind of industries without that level of commitment. You know, I spent my teenage years um, very much like Luca, but sort of more in the the theater world as opposed to ballet. Um, And it was, you know, my whole life. And I dedicated every spare hour to that. Um, And, you know, I was lucky enough to then have this wonderful career on stage. And I don't know if that would have happened if I hadn't have made so many sacrifices leading up to it, you know, but it's just, so it's kind of that, yeah, that double-edged sword of will you succeed if you don't give it your all? But then if you do give it your all, what happens if you don't succeed? Or even if you do, you know, you you sacrifice so much in those in those kind of careers. I feel like a lot of people have uh, those I wish moments. Like I, I started this thing and I wish I'd kept it going or I wish I'd done this when I was young because 
with a very, you know, sort of oversimplified understanding of like brain neuroplasticity, we kind of think, I can't do it as an adult. But then what you show us with Luca also kind of mirrors that adult conception that we have to just focus and it becomes kind of our career. Our career becomes our identity and we don't give ourselves space outside of that. And in Luca, we see something that to a greater or lesser extent, almost all adults do to themselves out of some, <clears throat> some sort of need to pursue a, a, a career or a vocation. Yeah. And I think we like to have convenient ways to define ourselves as well. It's really easy to have, you know, some sort of, career word that you can say, hi, I'm Tobias. I'm this, as opposed to just being like, I'm Tobias. And there's, Mm. you know, so many parts to me. So I think we like to have that, but you know, I think one thing that I hope people take away from the story, you know, teenagers and adults is that we don't need to have that and we don't need to have our lives sorted or a clear direction necessarily because there's, there's so many pathways in life um, and so many amazing things to explore. And sometimes I think that kind of really single focus kind of way of living can, you know, take you away from things that, that might be really fun and really cool. And sometimes we just get into a flow of that and we, we get taken up along with it. But I want to explore whether that's actually true. Now, Luca's injury is central to the action. He moves through kind of like a complete destruction of his personal narrative, the story that he was telling himself probably well into his, you know, even though a career of a, of a, a ballet dancer may not be, you know, you're not retiring age 70. He had told his story well into adulthood and he struggles to find a new way to tell that story about himself. Now, you're a writer. You know that we all have stories. But do you think we acknowledge enough that we are actually active in telling those stories both to ourselves and to the world? Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, I think some of us, you know, very ambitious people tell those stories to ourselves a lot. We have, you know, those very clear goals and dreams and you do sort of set that thing. And a lot of people in so many industries, you know, are encouraged to do that kind of here's my five-year plan, here's my 10-year plan. And, and in, in essence, I guess that is just us, you know, telling us, telling ourselves those, those stories of things we want to tick off and achieve. And it's hard because, you know, it's one thing to make those plans, but then, you know, to make them happen is a completely different thing. And I think um, I was reading something recently. I can't remember what it was, but it was, oh, it was, um, in a book by Shonda Rhimes, who's the creator of Grey's Anatomy and um, this whole TV empire. Um, and she, there was a part in her sort of book about, you know, it's, it's one thing to have dreams and it's great to be a dreamer, but you have to also then be a doer to actually make any of that happen. And so, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's difficult because it's great to have those plans, but sometimes, you know, if you tell yourself, the same story over and over again too many times maybe it's not the right story for you anymore because our lives change so much and and the things we need and the things we want change you know almost on a daily basis and if you're working towards this 10-year plan that you set up five years ago maybe that's not actually the right 10-year plan for you anymore you know we need to be able to pivot I think and and trust our gut for when we need to do that. And they might work better, I mean, if we, if we lived in isolation, if our, our 10-year plan or our 10-year story could just sort of motor along a single rail. But, of course, it doesn't. We interact with other people's stories. I love that you give a prominent supporting role to Allied Health. And 
Luca's occupational therapist, her his his OT Sammy, um, she's essential to his recovery, both in his physical therapies, but also in the emotional support that she gives Luca. I mean, she really helps Luca see that his story was never just a single story going down a single track and that it moves with others. Do you think we give proper recognition there in in terms of that kind of healing process to the psychological and the emotional components of our healing? Um, I think we're probably starting to more and more. I think, you know, obviously conversations around mental health have become a lot more prominent even in the last sort of two or three years, I guess, um, and are continuing to be sort of pushed as something that we really do need to focus on a lot more. Um, But, you know, it's really interesting in the case of Luca and a lot of people like Luca with injuries and stuff like that, we often, you know, think about treating the injury itself. But, you know, anything like that comes with some pretty severe emotional trauma as well. Um, So I think it's, you know, really great that, Sammy is there, you know, as this kind of really positive influence on Luca and she's obviously there to manipulate his body and, and help the healing process. But, you know, even just being there as a positive role model for him in a, in a passive way is so helpful for Luca um, on top of kind of, you know, all the very nice, I guess, um, you know, maternal kind of advice that she gives him. And obviously Luca, you know, his mum died when he was very young, so he doesn't have that kind of figure. So I guess, having Sammy there, which replaces, you know, his, his dance teachers who have been kind of taken away from him, who kind of filled that spot. Um, yeah, it's a really lovely relationship to watch. And I think, um, you know, in an ideal world, maybe Luca would also be seeing a psychologist um, to deal with this kind of thing. But, you know, there's only so much room in a story. And I guess um, Sammy gets to kind of fill that spot for him as well. Very professionally, I might add. There's this beautiful moment um, where those roles blur, where Luca is... And this is... I, I, I worked really hard with my questions and I'm not going to give too many spoilers, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that he eventually gets the cast off. He eventually goes into a moon boot. And he is really struggling with this idea that his his foot, this catastro- this injury that was catastrophic, he knew he would never dance again, but there's a moment where it's almost like he feels like he can't walk he can't put weight on it and Sammy's role becomes very much both the the physical therapist and also the the counselor that helps him do that and there's also other really interesting emotional um, processes going on for Luca just going to OT and in the waiting room and I want to come to the ensemble cast that you've created in anything but fine, because this would be this would be a perfectly, I'll say, fine book if it was just Luca's story. But you create an ensemble cast. Perhaps, perhaps this is your experience from the theatre where we need to have our eyes drawn to an ensemble cast. But I loved them, and I particularly loved that you focused um, almost exclusively on let's let's use the term young adult characters. Luca, Jordan, Amina, even Gibbo and the Bunheads are all shown with full agency in their lives. And for the most part, they're taking responsibility for that. Um, the adult characters are there, but they don't, they don't take over. Like we can so often see adults want to take over in young people's lives. It seems a stark contrast to broader conversations about the role that adolescents play in their own lives and their futures. Was that something you wanted to highlight? Um, yeah, I... I really did want um, all of the characters to kind of have their own journeys. Definitely. I feel like it's, it's very easy to write 
um, a supporting cast who are very much just there to support the main character. Um, but, you know, I think it's really important for them to have their own sort of clear journeys and, and like you said, their own agency. And um, I think it leads to really kind of interesting conversations and interesting interactions in a story, you know, when everyone, you know, thinks they are right. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing and everyone is trying to protect their own feelings and their own sense of self, you know, which is such a big thing for teenagers when they're trying to figure out who they are and how they fit into the world. So everyone, you know, has this very clear idea of what they want and, you know, how they think everything should happen. And so then when those kind of ideas clash in the story, I I find that really interesting because, you know, it's not like, Yes, there are some characters in the book who do some kind of unquestionably bad things, but for the most part, you know, everyone is just kind of doing their best in their own kind of weird way. And so when those things kind of interact and lead to those confrontations and and different opinions, I, I find that really interesting and really fun to write about. It's extraordinary sort of the the breadth and the depth of these relationships that you are able to explore. I'm going to... I'm probably going to need to pay royalties at the end of this on using the word identity. Um, I am using it just so much in the conversation, but it is key to our development as we grow. It remains key in our adult lives. We don't we don't pay a lot of heed to that because, as we've already discussed, we tend to lock ourselves into a story and believe that that is unchangeable. But you do explore these multiple complex issues of identity. Now, without too much in the way of spoilers for a, a key pot, plot point to anything but fine, did you want to highlight the ways that masculine roles and masculine identities are performed? And I want to really emphasize this idea of them being performed and how this can harm young men's self-identity. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, that's something I'm... Tick, it's pretty, harmful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I'm pretty passionate about. And I think, you know, one thing that was really lovely um, in writing the book was to write Luca's relationship with his dad, who's a single parent, um, you know, in a way that a lot of those typical masculine ideas are completely thrown out the window, you know, in not only in the sense that Luca's dad, you know, accepts his sexuality just wholeheartedly and it's a complete non-issue, but even in the fact that, you know, Luca's dad's interests, he's a primary school teacher, but, you know, he spends a lot of spare time watching reality TV or, you know, kids' movies and that sort of stuff and, and crying on the couch at Toy Story, like it's, things that I don't think, you know, we typically would associate with, you know, a single father. Mm. Um, So that was really fun to explore. But then obviously, um, you know, Luca and his interactions with the other boys at his school, including Jordan, who's sort of one of the other um, main supporting characters, you know, it really does sort of explore those, those different views. And we've got someone like Kibo, who's one of the main antagonists in the story, who kind of represents a lot of, you know, toxic masculine traits, um, which, you know, again, it's not, it's not his fault that he has those ideals and those sort of thoughts about masculinity. You know, it's obvious that that is something that gets passed down, you know, in that country town environment and that he's a product of his environment very much. Um, But then, you know, other characters are kind of somewhere along that spectrum and, and Luca is able to use his kind of really lovely home environment and his upbringing and his, you know, experience basically only ever being friends with girls to sort of encourage some of these other characters to explore different sides of 
of themselves. Mm. I'm going to, I want to come back. I just want to note first that the one thing that I, I, I really loved and it's incredibly effective in the narrative is the way you move, moving between spaces of safety and comfort and spaces of confrontation. Because I do really think that in our lives, we are able to, to bring people around us and create family that will help us feel safe. It's something that's very, it's very necessary, but it can also create a false sense of what the world is. And I use that to incredible effect, um, on, at numerous points in the in the novel, I wanted to go a little bit further into the the area, the spoiler free area that we're we're skirting around here. And I wondered with with LGBTQIA plus culture featuring so prominently throughout our pop culture, it can seem like the stigma of being gay is disappearing again. If you move in spaces where that is that is a safety and. Um, can you talk, though, about, because this is also something that Luca thinks about, his own experience, his confrontations with homophobia, can you talk about the pressures that you explore and the struggle for young gay men in coming out? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, like you said, I think sometimes it's very easy to forget that it isn't still an issue for a lot of people. Um, you know, and I've spent most of my life in the theatre world where, it really isn't an issue. Um, so it is easy to forget. And I think even, you know, living in places like Sydney and, and Melbourne, um, you know, it's a big part of our culture. But, you know, then you go into country Victoria or, you know, regional Queensland, all these kind of places where it's not as common, it's not as prominent. Um, you know, it can still be a really big deal. Um, and even if you are, in a, in a big place where, you know, queer culture is, is a lot more prominent, there's still so many pressures around, you know, the, the way that you have to come out, the way that you have to be as a queer person, you know, there's still so many pressures that come with that. Um, but then, you know, in a town like Ballarat, um, which has come a very long way since I lived there as a teenager, that's for sure. Um, it is still one of those things where, you know, and Luca has, um, a kind of little inner monologue about it at one point where he's sort of saying that, you know, yes, it's kind of seen as okay to be gay, but it's not very common. And it's still sort of thought of as the second best option to being straight, which I think is a really interesting way to look at it where it's like, you know, people are okay with it, but they would still prefer if you weren't kind of thing, which, you know, is a really kind of odd type of acceptance where it's like, yeah, it's fine rather than something to be celebrated. Um, so, and I think that that is definitely something we're sort of still working through in Australia. Um, and even in sense of our, in the sense of our language, you know, like you go to a country town like, like Ballarat um, and you'll hear a lot of kids saying things like, Oh, that's so gay. And it's like, you know, it's very easy to underestimate the effect of that on a young closeted kid who then just associates the word with something negative, even though they know in themselves that it's not. And they have lots of positive role models in the media and in culture around them. You know, when that's your day-to-day life, it still can become, you know, quite stifling to your identity. Yeah, I, I was really interested in the way you picked up on the language around it as well, because even even just the, the idea we're talking about, this idea of coming out, makes it sound like it's a thing, like... 
like um, you know, Britain had Freedom Day, and suddenly you know they're they're out of of coronavirus. And we know though that um, you know for that example, it was not a single moment. And there are you know there's lots of discussion that's going to be much more cogent than what I'm about to say. But um, ideas around coming out as, as a multiple uh, a multiple process where it's coming out to many people and coming out over you know different times, and the language can craft the story. I mean, we've, we've put a lot of effort into this conversation talking about the stories that we tell. And I was, I was fascinated with the way you engaged with those conversations and the way you engaged with that language. It, it was really interesting. And I think, I think it was particularly effective that you showed, you showed a more progressive way of thinking in Luca's world and the safety that he has been able to create craft around himself. But also through Gibbo, you showed us that like the work's not done yet. And I think a lot of people want to believe, hey, the work's been done and anyone who's saying that it's not is just attention-seeking and agitating and, and discontent. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, the work is not done. And, you know, we have come a very, very long way and it's so wonderful to be able to have, you know, to even have this conversation about it. Like this wouldn't have been a conversation, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But, um. Yeah, and I think people sometimes underestimate everyone's individual journeys with that. And just because just because something is more prevalent in wider society doesn't mean that someone personally doesn't have their own sort of feelings around it and their own issues with it and their own struggles because everyone's family situation, cultural situa- situation, religious situation, there's so many things that affect coming out and affect, you know, that whole thing that it's very easy for, you know, people living in a progressive queer society to say, no, we're done with that. We just need stories about, you know, wonderful queer things. And we do need them, but we just need all of it. We need all of those kind of queer stories along that whole spectrum of of what it's like to be growing up, you know, queer in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's funny, like you said, that coming out process is kind of a multiple thing and it happens well into adulthood. Like even, a couple of years ago when I got married, I, in my office, which was quite a big office at the time, um, where everyone didn't know me personally, but everyone heard that I got married and people would say things to me like, what does your wife do? And I would have to then come out to them on the spot in the, you know, the kitchen in the office because it's just, and it's such a weird, it's such a weird feeling, you know, as an adult who came from a time when being gay was much less accepted that instantly you kind of regress to those feelings of, of stress and anxiety and dread of what it's going to be like to tell someone. And it's, it's just, I find it really fascinating that, you know, that can be carried through your entire life with new people that you meet. You know, it's a constant thing. Mm. I want to pick up on some of the intersections you just talked there too. And I think whenever, whenever this comes up, I always like to remind myself that intersectionality is, a, is an idea it's terminology that we are becoming more comfortable with, but it's still not it's still not part of our broader vernacular. But you do engage with this and the again, those safety and those comfort spaces that we feel like we might live in. There's a there's a particular moment in the story where Luca defends so he's been he's had to leave his old school. He's gone to this new school where he is struggling to fit in, except for this one incredibly beautiful new friend, Amina. And Luca defends Amina against some pretty horrid Islamophobia. And it's particularly worse because it comes from someone that Luca had thought of as a friend. He reflects to himself 
how he, he's surprised. He didn't even think people thought like that. He, he could barely conceive that people still thought like that because that's not how he thinks. And I wondered, are we in danger of getting too comfortable in our thinking? Do we need to unsettle ourselves every now and again? Because the hard work, you know, we talked about the hard work before. The hard work against racism has barely begun. Yeah, I think, you know, the same as, you know, we were speaking about, um, you know, with all of the, the queer issues and coming out and stuff, I think when you're living, yeah, in a place that is relatively progressive and especially, you know, working in the arts and, you know, industries that are at the forefront of change in all of these kind of different respects, it can be really easy to forget that um, not everyone in the world thinks these ways. And I think, you know, in the last few years, we've had a few big moments um, really eye-opening moments where you realize just how far we haven't come, such as things like um, when we had the, the plebiscite on gay marriage. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought at that point that it would be a no-brainer for the country, but for it to be this big thing and to see all these comments on Facebook, you know, was like, oh, gosh, you know, my little bubble of happiness in the theatre world does not reflect the wider community. And then again, you know, last year in 2020 with um, Black Lives Matter, that sort of movement coming to the forefront on social media and stuff, you really do see that not everyone thinks in these progressive ways that that seems so natural and seems so normal to a lot of us. But then you you really do realise that um, big percentages of the country and the world don't share um, such liberal views, which can be really eye-opening and, and kind of scary because, you, you know, you don't necessarily know how to tackle that in any way and how to how to be a good ally and how to sort of really, um, you know, fill that role for, for everyone who needs it. I want to I refocus here because we are talking about some very, very heavy stuff and I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Anything But Fine is just an incredibly joyful book. Um, I... I really loved, and this is this is maybe you, you use the word allyship there. I really loved the way you explored kind of uncomfortable allyship and the way you let Luca, um, in his relationship with Amina and with um with Jordan and with the other kids in the school, like even even in the slightly more um, confrontational moments, you allowed them to have these really. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to use the word adult because I don't want to imply for a second that somehow adolescents <laughs> cannot do this. They had these really open and exchange. They exchanged ideas, and they were able to ask questions that were respectful. And I mean, I, I think that well, that that's really brilliant that you've crafted that. And I'm just like, I want people to read anything but fine, just so that they can learn how to have a civil conversation. <laughs> Should be sent to all Twitter users. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that, and I think you know, it's the characters um, are all very vulnerable with each other. You know, I think they're all going through um, very different things. And I think that it was really fun for me to be able to write these characters who, you know, will allow themselves to feel awkward things and to express them out loud to each other and, you know, to then go behind the scenes and and do the work that they need to do um, and then come back with a fresher perspective and and deeper understanding of, of each other because, you know, there's, so many different things that 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 could be for an individual. And I think it's really nice to sort of see moments where, you know, Luca acknowledges when he meets Amina that he can tell she's never met 
a gay kid before. And so he sees her sort of process that and then it's, you know, this lovely thing and they have this lovely friendship. But the same with Luca sort of, you know, being around Amina and realizing, you know, he doesn't really know anything about her faith, about Islam and about, you know, how that affects her day-to-day life. So he at first is kind of very awkward about it and doesn't really know how to interact with that. But then he, you know, he goes off the page and does some work and does a little bit of research and, and talks to her about it openly. And, you know, he's lucky that she is such an open and generous person and is, is willing to sort of have those kind of slightly awkward conversations with him. Um, but it was really nice to, to be able to explore that. And I think it's so important that, you know, we do sort of try and help each other and, and give each other the benefit of the doubt with things that, you know, we're all, you know, trying to, trying to do our best. And especially for teenagers, you know, there's, there's enough going on already for them that, um, you know, they're just trying to do their best. I know. And especially right now. Um, look, you, I think you gave me some ideas there, but I mean, you've, you've gone through this process to, to create these characters. It's easy to believe um, reading the book that these, these are uh, individuals and not that they've all sort of sprung fully formed from <laughs> your brain. In, in going through that process of, of having them be open and having them make missteps, do you have any advice around just uh, fostering openness in our own lives? Um, gosh, I don't know. I think, um, you know, I think something that I try and really foster in my own life and when I have taught um, dance in the past, whether that's, quite young kids or up to sort of, you know, um, young adults sort of, you know, in professional training. Um, I always really talk a lot about vulnerability and I think it can be really powerful. And I think that, you know, allowing yourself to be really open about your feelings um, with each other. And if you're vulnerable and the people around you are vulnerable, I think that comes with a, a very deep level of respect as well, because, you know, you're, sharing such personal things. Um, and I think, yeah, I think for me, that's a big part of it is just allowing yourself to, to be vulnerable and open and, um, you know, have those conversations without judgment. Like I know that with any of my friends, I can say something or ask a question and they won't jump to any conclusions about what I believe or what I think or what kind of person I am. They just take the question as the question, you know? Um, and I think that, if anyone ever came to me with sort of those questions about what it's like to be gay or queer things, you know, I would always, you know, come at that with a very fresh, open perspective and, and, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt because I know that if they're asking those questions, it's because they want to do better and and be better. I liked what you said before about doing the work as well. We have in anything but fine, but also in just the huge body of incredible Love Oz YA books that are out there and just writing in general. We have so many resources to, you know, do our research, try and understand and and not assume the burden of the emotional work on the person who, whom we've, we've you know, maybe, maybe is already feeling othered um, in a society. Um, yeah, to, Tobias has been such a great chat. Um I want to I want to sort of reintroduce people and reintroduce the book. I am speaking with Tobias Madden. His debut novel is anything but fine. It is an absolute joy and engages with so many important topics that are just very present in our society today. Tobias, thanks so much for coming on Final Draft. Thank you. It's been so much fun to chat. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for this great conversation with Tobias Madden. Tobias's debut novel, Anything But Fine, is out now from Penguin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, there is a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.